Hello and welcome to 10 by 9, where nine people have up to 10 minutes each to tell a true story from their own life. I'm Paul Doran and this is the 10 by 9 podcast. It's a slightly shorter podcast this week, two stories, but they're brilliant. They were both told in 2022 in our home venue, The Black Box in Belfast, during the heady days of summer. The first is a coming-of-age story, and the second is set in a wonderfully exotic location. So, let's get going. Here's Paul Whittington. He told this story in July, when the theme was holiday. Please, Auntie, please can we go to the beach? My aunt looked at both of us, hopping from one foot to another in excitement. Ooh, I don't know. Your Uncle Sidney may need your help. Who's going to do the chores? She smiled at the disappointment etched on our faces. She leant down and spoke softly. Maybe if, she paused for a few moments, you collect the eggs for me, then you. We didn't wait for her to finish. We bolted for the door, galloped across the yard to the hen house. We lifted the baskets from the shelf inside the shed. The smell was rotten. No one liked collecting the eggs. Hundreds of hens in cages, scrawny and fierce. If you got too close, they would happily peck your hands as you reached in to collect the eggs. Handkerchiefs tied across the mouth and nose did little to shut out the smell. Thankfully, we were not cleaning the hen house. Starting at opposite sides, we scooped up the eggs in record time with minimal casualties. After dumping the eggs on the kitchen table and grabbing our swimmers and towels from the clothes hearth, we stuffed the towels and swimmers into the wicker baskets on the front, leapt on the bikes and launched ourselves from the yard past Auntie's special garden. Neat flower beds, smooth lawns, no football matches ever allowed on this manicured oasis. Hurtling down the lane at breakneck speed to join the Grey Abbey Road. A quick glance at the end of the lane to check for any traffic. But there was rarely any so no need to stop. Legs pumping in glorious high spirits, we zoomed along the country roads, wind blowing through our hair. No helmets in those days. The hardest part was at the end, as we took the long, tortuous, potholed lane to the islands. There was a big uphill section along the uneven track where we had to stand up on the pedals, rocking from side to side to reach the crest. Legs splayed outwards, the last part was downhill. Getting faster and roaring with delight, we sped through the, the yard past Granny's house, down a short lane to the shore, skidding and sliding the bikes to a stop, spraying gravel in all directions. Dumping the bikes on the grass bank, we headed onto the strip of sand. There was a small causeway to another cottage with a few acres of land. We quickly changed and ran, whooping and yelling as the cool, clear waters of Strangford Lock. We arrived hot and sweaty, but the waters washed us clean and refreshed our tired limbs. Swimming races to the small boy, marking someone's lobster pot and back to the shore. Diving to collect a pirate treasure strewn on the lock bed. Well, just rocks and shells. Afterwards, we lay on our towels on the small beach, enjoying the warmth of the sun, talking about football and other important life issues that concern two 10-year-old boys. We watched the clouds as they swept past, trying to see animals or any objects in their shape. The cries of an animal in pain cut through the peace. We got up and followed the sound, steadfully along the wall of the cottage towards the back. 
Hiding behind a large bush, we peered into the backyard, empty except for a big blue barrel of water. The cries and yelps were louder now, but we couldn't see the animal. Suddenly the door of the outhouse banged open. A man came out carrying a small brown puppy, squirming and whimpering in his beefy hand. My cousin grabbed my arm and dragged me away. I started to protest, but placing his finger across his lips, his angry look silenced me. The magic of the afternoon was over. Back at the beach, Kenneth said it was time to return home. We got changed in silence and mounted our bikes and headed back to the farm. It was a silent return. The silence was like a shroud over us as we slowly pedaled our way home. Again and again I asked, why did we have to leave so quickly? What was the man doing with the puppy? Kenneth just pedaled harder and said we needed to get back to do the chores. This was not true. And I felt disappointed and confused. Why was my cousin behaving like this? Back in the, at the farm as we put the bikes back in the lower barn, I grabbed Kenneth's arm, making him look at me. What happened? Why did we leave? Kenneth sighed and said, I'll tell you after tea. Let's go and play football. We walked out the orchard beside the bullfield where we had, with my older cousin's help, made a set of goalposts with meal bags sewn together for a net. If there's one thing that 10-year-old boys love to do is kick about. The rest of the afternoon passed playing football, riding on the tractor with my uncle Sidney to round up the cows for milking. I was even allowed to attach the clusters onto the udders and watch the milk being pumped into the large glass vessels. Milking over, and when we heard my aunt shout that tea was ready, we made our way to the farmhouse, kicking off our wellies at the back door. We all sat down the seats for tea, bowed our heads while Uncle Sidney said grace, thanking God for the food and for the good things we enjoyed. A bowl of potatoes with large lumps of melted butter, steaming vegetables and a tray of sausages were passed around the massive hope table. Conversations started up, punctuated by pauses to eat, and the atmosphere was relaxed and convivial. That is, until my uncle asked me did I enjoy my swim. Yeah, it was great, but what was that man doing with the puppy? I answered nervously. All eyes were on me except Kenneth, who was staring at his plate. Well, what do you mean? He, yelled, he replied. I told the story of how we heard a dog yelping in distress and went to find out if the animal was hurt. But all we saw was this big barrel of water and a man carrying a small puppy towards the barrel. Kenneth was now not the only person staring at their plates. The silence was oppressive and tense. My uncle looked at me and sighed. Don't worry about it. Best to forget. He then asked James, his eldest son, a question about the harvest. With a notable sense of relief, everyone started talking. I was disappointed and let down. Why was nobody telling me? No one was meeting my eye. A few people gave me a quick smile. After tea, as Kenneth and I were drying the dishes, Uncle Sidney put his arm around me and said, Paul, come with me, I must check on the bull. He exchanged a knowing look with my aunt, Kenneth looked annoyed as he was left to dry the rest of the dishes on his own. He was about to say something, but one look from my aunt was enough to silence him. We walked through our small football pitch past the orchard to the bull field. The bull was enormous, and I was terrified to get too close. The thing was massive. 
Thankfully, we stood at the gate and the bull ambled over to us, sniffed my uncle's big rough hands. He seemed so docile that I ventured to stroke his nose. He snorted loudly and shook his head. I quickly took my hand away and stepped away from the gate. My uncle laughed and tousled my hair. We stood for several minutes admiring the magnificent beast, but my uncle spoke quietly. What do you think the man was doing? I don't know, but I don't think it was a good thing. Why do you think that? He asked, his kind face looking at me intently. I suppose the way Kenneth dragged me away. So that I couldn't see. My uncle nodded, paused, rubbed his chin and replied. You know that some of the animals on the farm are sent away to the abattoir, where they are killed and we eat them. I nodded, he continued. We have to keep the farm safe, so sometimes we have to kill rats and occasionally foxes as they would eat the chickens. The man had puppies, too many. No one wanted the puppies. He had to get rid of them, so he quickly killed them. No, puppies are not rats, I replied angrily. I would have looked after the puppy. I would have taken care of it, I pleaded. He looked at me and smiled. I'm sure you would. I'm sure you would. He said with great sadness in his eyes. He placed his big arm, sand hand on my shoulder and squeezed it. He turned to head back to the house when I asked, Is the puppy in heaven? This seemed to catch him unawares. He stopped, thought for a moment before replying. I'm sure it is, he said. We walked back through the yard, entered the kitchen where my aunt was still doing the dishes along with my cousin. We still visited the beach on warm, sunny days. But that cottage cast a long, dark shadow even on the days when there was no sun. Paul, thank you so much. What a painful memory from an idyllic place. Okay, on to our next story, and it's from Lindsay Allen, who was at the 10 by 9 mic for the first time. And what a debut. It was August, and the theme was Once When I Was Younger. You may notice that I walk with a slight limp. This is the story of that limp, how I obtained it, and how I lived to tell the tale. But before I begin, I have to assure you that Everything I'm about to tell you is absolutely true. I know that's a condition of these stories, but some of aspects of this story may seem so far-fetched that you might think, might be tempted to think that I'm making it up. But I'm not. Everything is true. Some 30 years ago, I found myself standing in a deserted street in the ancient city of Sana'a in Yemen, in the Middle East. Sana'a, when I was there, was a fascinating place. As you walk through the massive gates of Babel, Yemen, into the old walled city, you step back two or 3,000 years. In front of you is a camel, harnessed to a thick wooden beam. The other end of the beam is attached to two massive millstones lying flat on the ground. And as the camel slowly plods in the circle around the stones, it's grinding corn. Periodically, a small boy arrives with a wheelbarrow. He tops up the millstones with more corn, 
fills the wheelbarrow with the freshly milled flour and wheels it 30 yards or so to the baker's shop. The baker's shop is essentially a table in which he makes the dough and a blazing wood-fired oven in which the flat loaves are baked. In those days, I could buy a smoking hot loaf straight out of the oven for the equivalent of about two pence. One of the striking things about Sanaa at that time was that when you moved outside the labyrinth of souks and alleyways of the old city into the urban sprawl of what was modern Sanaa, it was very easy to get lost. It was easy to get lost because every street looked exactly the same. Every shop front, every doorway, every gate and fence, every shutter and grill were all painted the same color, a sort of duck egg blue. And if you couldn't read the Arabic street names, it was very difficult to know, in fact, which street you were actually in. The street I was in was in an area called the Embassy District, where I was living at that time. All the foreign embassies were there, not just the British ambassador, but the Americans, the Russians, and so on, they were all here, living securely behind 10-foot high walls and heavy steel duck-egg blue gates. To say that I was conspicuous standing out there on the street would be an understatement. I stuck out like a sore thumb. There were very few people who looked like me in Sanaa. Suddenly, a young man appeared from around a corner, about 50 or 60 yards away, and he let out a shout. And I turned around in time to see him pull out a gun and begin shooting at me. I took off running, as you would, with him after me. Now, I need to explain that at this stage in my life, I was also carrying a gun. And as I ran, I periodically turned back and fired a shot or two at him. And so we both ended up running down that empty street, shooting at each other. He was younger than me, and although I was fairly fit at that time, I knew that unless I did something quick, he would get the better of me. The problem was that with these high walls and steel gates on each side, I had nowhere to go. But as I rounded a corner, I saw an open gateway, and I ran through it. I could see that the front door of the building at the end of the drive was open, and so I ran towards it with this young man still behind me and still taking the occasional shot at me. As I got closer to the building, I could see in the hallway a stone staircase, which I knew would lead up to the flat roof. And so I ran towards it and up the steps. At the top was a door which opened onto the roof, and I remember hoping that the door wasn't locked. But as I reached it, the young man fired a shot from the bottom of the steps, which hit the wall just above my head. And I turned and fired once at him and missed. Pulled the trigger again and discovered my gun was empty. Mercifully, the door was unlocked. I pushed it open, slamming it behind me to gain a few seconds from my pursuer and ran across the flat roof. But now I had nowhere to go. The building next door was too far away to leap across to and, and I knew I was trapped. I looked down into the street, which was still empty decided there was nothing to do but to jump for it. I leapt off the roof onto the gravelly pathway below and as I landed I felt a pain shooting up my lower left leg and realised I had damaged my ankle. 
However, I wasn't followed and managed to limp painfully away and find my way back to where I was staying. When I eventually got my ankle x-rayed, the doctor told me that I had what he described as an eggshell fracture in my heel, and I've walked with a slight limp ever since. Again, I want to assure you that everything I've told you is absolutely true. One or two details that I may have left out are that the young man chasing me was the son of an American family I was staying with, and the pistols we were using were water pistols. <laughs> Uh, what a great story, Lindsay. Please come back soon. And that is it for this podcast. Check out all the 10x9 dates on our website, 10x9.com, including some special events, and keep in touch with us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Maybe think about giving the podcast a review or a rating at a podcast app. It's very helpful if you can. And tell as many people as you can about 10 by 9 and the 10 by 9 podcast. Thanks to all the people who make 10 by 9 happen, the wonderful people at the Black Box in Belfast, our amazing audiences, and all our storytellers, but especially Paul Whittington and Lindsay Allen. I'm Paul Dorn, and I'll be back with another podcast soon. But for now, bye bye. <laughs>